this is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to the first uh, colloquium of the term. Uh, and our first speaker this term is Celia Pierce, who comes from the uh, Georgia Institute of Technology. Uh, there she is the director, coordinator of the Experimental Games Lab, uh, and is also teaching courses related to um, uh, virtual worlds to game design. She's working on an MMO yes. uh, called Mermaids, um, and um, she's coordinating diverse um, game design uh, enterprises at the EGG, the Experimental Games Emergent Group. Emergent Games Group. Emerging, sorry. Emerging Games Group. That's a problem when you improvise. Um, <laughs> apart from that, she's been... Uh, she has a lot of experience in the industry itself of video games and entertainment since, shall I say, 1983. Uh, she's been uh, working on diverse um, installations, entertainment like theme parks, um, and has also written a book. Um, well, she's written two books. She's written a book called The Interactive, Inter book. The interactive book. And uh, later this year, um, her forthcoming book, Communities of Play, Emerging Cultures in Multiplayer Games and Virtual Worlds, uh, will be coming out in the MIT Press. So without further ado, I give you Celia Pierce. Thank you, Clara. And it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I've been spending the last couple of days hanging out in the Gambit Lab, which is this kind of magical fairy tale place for games researchers. So it's been really fun to be there. <laughs> see all the things going on, and I'm extremely uh, impressed with your guys' ability to make something so cool. So, thanks for having me. Um, I'm actually going to talk uh, a, a little bit about some work from the book, um, and specifically I'm going to focus on a particular aspect of the research that I've been doing, which concerns uh, the emergent cultures of online games and virtual worlds. So the talk today is titled, Identity as Place, Fictive Ethnicities in Online Games and Virtual Worlds. Um, I'm going to start by reading you this poem called My Homeland Uru. From my beautiful homeland, from my beloved homeland, I hear the Baro cry, and Kaddish's wife sing her song of despair. And a refrain is sung by a sister who lives far from her homeland, and the mem memories make her cry. The song that she sings springs from her pain and her own tears, and we can hear her cry. Your homeland strikes your soul when you are gone. Your homeland sighs when you are not there. The memories live and flow through my blood. I carry her inside of me. Yes, it's true. The refrains continue, as does the melancholy, and the song that keeps repeating flows in my blood ever stronger on its way to my heart. I sing of my homeland, beautiful and loved. I suffer the pain that is in her soul. Although I am far away, I can feel her, and one day I'll return. I know it. So this is a poem that was written by one of my research subjects um, during a period of about two years uh, where I studied uh, players from the game Uru. 
And the place that she's identifying as her homeland is a fictional place. <laughs> um, it's a completely imaginary world um, that began uh, initially with the Mist series, which I'll talk about in a minute. So I'm sure everybody here knows what Mist is. Does anybody have, have not heard of Mist? Clearly, you're getting a good education. Um, you'd be amazed how many people I talk to who have never heard of Mist. It frightens me. Um, which came out in 1993. It was really the first CD-ROM that people identified as showing the potential of games to be an art form. And often when people say to me, where is our Citizen Kane? Um, I always point to this as the game that was sort of at the same level of kind of importance in the, in the history of game design. Um, it was the best-selling CD-ROM until it was outstripped by The Sims in 2001. It was also the first video game that had a very strong following of female players, particularly older female players. I first started hearing about it in the early 90s from women in their 30s, which was a demographic I had never heard. No, no woman I knew up to that point, oh my god, have you played this game? I never heard that before <laughs> until this game came out. Um, and there were a couple things about it. One of them was um, it created this whole imaginary world. It was this kind of thing that uh, Tolkien calls subcreation, the creation of a world for, within, fiction, within which fiction takes place. Um, but from the very beginning, it inspired a lot of creative fan culture. Um, people were, in, in a similar way to Star Trek fans, creating dictionaries of the language. Um, and I have an example here of a mist-inspired quilt that was made by a woman in her 50s. Um, so Uru was a massively multiplayer game that was based in the Mist world. Um, and I think it was between Mist 4 and Mist 5, if I'm not incorrect. Um, it's a little hard to tell since it, it played over a period of time. But it brought together 10,000 Mist fans, um, originally in a beta test, who had been essentially playing in this world for over a decade. Um, this was at the end of 2003, um, each by themselves. And all of a sudden, they found themselves th that they were sharing this world they had inhabited for a decade with other people. And this was a very powerful experience for players who played this game. And just to give you a little glimpse of what the game is. So if you've played Myst, you know the basic game mechanic. It's exactly the same in this game, except it's a real-time 3D environment. Um, and the puzzles are cooperative, so you're meant to play them together. There's no competition. There's no when when people who play MMOGs see this, they're baffled, because there's no health bar, there's no weapons. I don't see any points. What level am I? But none of that in this game whatsoever. Um, the, the images on the left represent the abandoned city of Dini Agora, which is an underground cave that players sort of stumble into in the game. And it holds clues to this, this uh, uh, basically dead culture of the Dunny who had uh, essentially destroyed their own world, escaped to Earth, and built the city in, under a mountain in New Mexico. And throughout this city are these books which lead you to these ages. And the, each age has a puzzle. The image on the right side is the relto. And this is a very unique mechanic to Uru. Rather than the traditional MMOG method of as you play, you get gear, and you're sort of wearing armor and things like that to indicate your level in the game. Your game progress was marked or demarcated, if you will, in this space that everyone had their own little hut. And every time you would find a new age, the book would go into your hut so that you could go there any time. And every time you, you worked an age or completed it, 
new features would be added. So you could basically, for instance, if you see there's a sort of a little tree on the, on the left side there, that was put there because I finished a portion of one of the ages. And so over time, your relative sort of becomes a way for other players to identify where you are in the game. And this is what I call spatial literacy, or one example of it, where uh, an experienced Uru player can look at a relto and know exactly how many levels I've played and how far I've gotten into them. So um, one of the interesting things about Uru that uh, distinguished it from the other Myst games is that it was the first game in the series to have an avatar. And this ended up being a very, very significant shift for people who had been in this franchise for some time. So the typical kind of idea of, of presence and immersion that we think about kind of a classic idea from the 90s of the you know, head-mounted display and all of this where you're in the first person and you feel like you're in a place. Um, and that was kind of seen as the high watermark of immersion. But what ended up happening was seeing themselves in the space actually enhanced their sense of immersion and presence in some really interesting ways. The first was that they, they described and they even used, I mean, the research subjects actually used the word proprioception, which I thought was interesting, pretty sophisticated concept for people who aren't trained in like, embodied interaction and whatnot, which is basically... Uh, the, the sense that allows us to know where our bodies are in space. So by seeing themselves, they were able to know where they were um, within the space. And then the other thing was that they were suddenly visible to other people. So there were other people there, but then they could be seen and they could be identified as a unique individual. And this is what I refer to as seeing and being seen, that the immersion was enhanced by the social component. It's kind of like if... I used to jokingly say back in the 90s, if an avatar falls in the woods and nobody is there to hear it, does it make a sound? Because people were making realistic avatars for single-player environments, which nobody would actually be able to see. <laughs> so it didn't make any sense. But I looked a lot at um, sociologists, in particular um, Irving Goffman's concept of the performance of everyday life and his concept of frame theory, which talk about how people shift their roles and personas in different contexts. And, um, and also the fact that everyone is always performing a role wherever they are. So I thought this was kind of in, an interesting set of theories to work with here. And what happened here was I think it's really important to understand this history about the franchise because it wasn't like these people just came into a new game that had just opened. They were in this, they had been in this world already for 10 years. And bonding with these other people who they had been, a sense, sharing this single player relationship with was very powerful for them. And interestingly enough, a lot of them told me in interviews that they were loners <laughs> um, and that they were very surprised. Some of them were afraid to be playing a multiplayer game. Uh, but most of them were very surprised by how quickly they made friends and how strong the bonds uh, uh, that they created were. And this is very interesting to me because I found that play uh, creates a particular kind of bond that's quite different from bonds that people form in other environments. So the idea of sharing imagination and sharing role play creates a particular kind of affinity. So if anyone's ever been to, say, Dragon Con or been part of a LARPing group, you'll see right away that there's a kind of a connection that people form in a play space that's really interesting and very, um, a very strong bond, really, what, is what I've found. Um, Uru was open for six months as a beta test. At the end of that period, um, the publisher decided that they were going to pull the plug on it and not release it as a commercial product. Um, this day was referred to 
in the lore of Uru culture as Black Monday or Black Tuesday, depending on which time zone you were in. And um, these players immediately began to identify themselves as refugees, which I think is very interesting. Um, and many of them have screenshots of this final shot of the game. Um, I got probably, I think I have a half a dozen of these from different people, um, which was a very traumatic moment for them because the world had literally come to an end. <laughs> um, and many of them had prepared for this. They got very little notice. I think they got about five days' notice. And they had set up forums. And Uru has a construct called a neighborhood, which I'll talk about in a minute, which is kind of like a guild in other games. And the guild, the group that I studied, the hood that I studied, had started a forum, and they had put a chat room there. So as soon as this closed, they went to the chat room. And this is really interesting to me, because one of the things that pervades throughout this narrative is the sense of place, the idea that they wanted to go someplace else together, which was an ongoing discussion and theme throughout. So what were they going to do at this point? Well, they decided they wanted to move somewhere else. And the Uru players actually broke up into several groups, which is why I term them the entire community as the Uru diaspora. And what they would do is they would, they would go and they would explore, and they would actually write on their forums these comparative critiques of these virtual worlds, which are fascinating for a designer to read, because they, they talk about these, all these individual qualities. And one of the things that was interesting about these players is they always identified themselves as explorers when I would talk to them. We're explorers and we're puzzle solvers. And it turns out explorers is actually what the players are called in the original game, but they also sort of thought of it as a play ideology. It was almost a theological position they had. And they would say, we don't, we don't play fighting games. We're explorers. And they loved there.com because it was very amenable to exploration as a game mechanic. Some of the players from this group went to Second Life. They started a little enclave there, but another much, much larger group. So this group was about 300 players when they left Uru. A group of about 200 players immigrated into Second Life and ended up building a complete reproduction of two levels of the game, which I'll show you momentarily. But anyway, so this is a screenshot from the forums uh, that players had made reporting back to their, uh, their hoodmates and writing these narratives of their experiences. And you can sort of tell, see how they're all wearing white t-shirts and khaki pants? That means they're noobs. That's the, that's the first outfit you would get in the game at that time. And the other thing is this was a chat-only environment at that time, uh, as was Uru, um, which changed later and had some interesting ramifications. So this quote here, we make our avatars and thereafter our avatars make us, is paraphrased from Marshall McLuhan and also directly quoted from one of my research subjects. And I love this quote because it really says a lot about how people connect with their avatars. And it, it, there's sort of two aspects. One of them is this thing I refer to as the social construction of identity. So one of the things these players had to do, having become refugees, and, and I want to I highlight that the majority of the people that I studied had never been in an online game before Uru. So they didn't have any established conventions of how they were supposed to behave. So they immediately carried their identities over into these other worlds. When they started their new avatars, they would try to approximate the appearance as much as possible of their Uru avatars, and they would give them the same names. And so that's kind of an interesting practice, where they, they actually carried the same identities between multiple worlds. Um, and part of the reason for this was so that they could identify each other. <laughs> 
So you can sort of think about this as, as cultural equivalents, like you know, Jewish people wearing a star or something. So you can tell your people when you go to another place. Um, and there are other things I'll talk about here that, that relate to that as well. Um, and the two images here, uh, the one on the left is the mayor on the left and the deputy mayor on the right of the gathering of Uru, which is the main group that I talk about in the book. Uh, a group of 300 people and um, Lisa on the left, and I use uh, aliases for all the players, aliases of their aliases, if you will. And um, she was described herself to me as a very shy person who was a big Mist fan who went into the Uru beta and she didn't really want to start a neighborhood, but all the beta testers were supposed to try the social tools. And so she, she got, they bothered her, the beta testing crew. And so she started this group. And first she didn't have anyone. And then she invited one person. And by the time the game closed, she had 300 people. And these two women had a very interesting relationship. Both of them are disabled. Um, June in particular is, I'm sorry, Lynn in particular is um, not able to walk. She ha can use her hands and she can speak, but she's in a wheelchair for the most part. Um, and they ran this group of 300 people, most of whom were baby boomers and half of whom were female. The character on the right is Yisha, who is the main character of Uru, and the costumes that the women are wearing are the Yisha costume created in there.com by one of their uh, group members. And all of these um, artifacts that we're gonna, I'm going to show you that were created by Uru players were really created to please the other people in the group. It wasn't so much about personal expression. It was, this will make, my, this will make the people in my group happy if I make these things that remind us of home. Um, another thing that I found really interesting, so I'm very interested in sort of the dynamics of social play, and I had been thinking a lot about Csikszentmihalyi's notion of flow, and he talks about it more in psychological terms, although he sort of talks a little bit in the book about jazz musicians and basketball players and how they achieve flow collectively, but he doesn't really dissect that in too much detail. Bernie DeCoven, who wrote a book called The Well-Played Game, does this in more depth, and he talks about how players in a group can maintain for each other a sense of flow by providing the perfect challenge to keep that, that um, sweet spot in the middle of the top diagram, and he calls that co-liberation, and this is where you're sort of being pushed to the optimum of your experience. So I kind of re, I sort of studied this idea, and I also looked at anthropology and sociology, and basically I characterize this as what I call intersubjective flow. So intersubjectivity is this concept from sociology having to do with transactions, essentially. And so, for instance, um, anthropologists who study language, language is an intersubjective process because it happens between people. So I'm interested in looking at how does flow happen between people. And this illustration is a really great example where the Uru players, partially because there wasn't a lot of new content when the original beta was, was distributed, started having these emergent play patterns, which is kind of my passion. And this one is they're playing hide and seek. Now, bear in mind that most of the people in this group are in their 50s and 60s. And many of them are employed. There are engineers. There are um, school teachers. There are, you know, most of them have a college education. And, and, and some of them are actually like Mensa scholars. So, and, and MIST has been described as having Mensa-level puzzles. So they would have these games of hide-and-seek, and they would uh, try to achieve the most sophisticated and creative hiding place. And this is the one that's sort of the best 
hiding place of all time was this guy who had figured out a collision flaw in this tree and had inserted his entire body into the trunk of the tree. So everyone sort of stood around and praised him for having come up with this brilliant hiding place. Um, and this is also, I mentioned the idea of spatial literacy before. One of the things that, okay, what's with the burning wheel of, spinning wheel of death? Uh, is that this idea of spatial literacy, that they could do that because they understood this space incredibly well. They knew every nook and cranny. They knew every flaw. And they were able to exploit those and play with them. Um, so another uh, interesting phenomenon is what I call productive play. Um, I published a paper about this in 2006 in Games and Culture in which I essentially refute the claim that play is by definition unproductive. Um, and what I argue there is, in fact, for many, many hundreds of years, people have been doing creative, productive things around play, everything from making elaborate chessboards to dressing up in Renaissance costumes and, and making their own clothes, uh, painting figurines, etc. And this is another example of that kind of a play pattern. So. What you're seeing here is the Uru Fountain, which is at the center of the neighborhood, which is essentially the clubhouse that each group would have. And this was like the social center of their, of their culture. And what, what they're doing here is dancing in the fountain, which is kind of a class, a sort of a ritual that they began to do. And on the right hand is that same fountain as reinstantiated in there.com. The lower right is Second Life, and the lower left is a completely self-contained recreation within Adobe Atmosphere, which is a 3D authoring environment. And interestingly enough, the, the, the people, some of, some of these people had some design background, but the gentleman, for instance, who built the Adobe Atmosphere environment had never done any 3D modeling before he did this. He had been a 2D graphic designer, but he had never worked with 3D. Um, The other thing that was interesting, so over time, in the very beginning when they, would, when they came, and there's this whole long story, which I won't go into detail, but they end up having to move seven times because they were run out of town. Uh, the people in there.com who were there before this group came were, were quite taken aback. Uh, they were afraid they were going to turn the whole game into Uru. Uh, they were taking up too much. And this is very interesting, which something that really came up uh, in this that, that brought this to my attention, that we always say, there are no limited resources in cyberspace. Everything is unlimited. You can make an infinite number of, number of copies. This is not the case. Um, in cyberspace, we have processing, which is a limited resource. And what would happen is when these, and they always wanted to stay together, so they would go to these areas and they would cause a massive amount of lag for anyone who was in the vicinity. And so they were marginalized for having, taking up all these cycles and causing all this lag. And, but over time, they, what, they, they experienced this thing called, which Ortiz calls transculturation, which is not so much the idea that immigrants go somewhere and they sort of adapt to the culture and, and mimic it, but that there's a, an interchange between the resident culture and the new culture coming in. The picture here is actually a, an image of the University of There, which is actually what I'm studying now with a grant from the NSF. This is a player-run university. These cone houses are made by an Uru designer. They're not, they're not directly derivative of Uru, like the fountain. They are inspired by it. And one of the things that this guy started to do was he started to experiment with a style that was a hybrid. So notice how cartoony the wood looks. That is made to fit in with a their aesthetic. So what he ended up with was this kind of cross-cultural style of architecture. This is a 
a letter that was written to uh, the group by Cola, who um, was also a disabled player, actually. And this is her talking about uh, merging with the Varian culture. And they would refer to themselves, and they still do, as Uruvarians. And how it was a struggle at first, also because they were so traumatized by having to leave Uru, but that eventually they, they embraced this new culture that they had sort of created, this new hybrid culture. And notice at the end, she has all these word plays. I have missed being in Dani yeah. and being riven, and, <laughs> and I'm an exile. And so she sort of uses all the names of the different games to, uh, to write this letter. Um, so one of the things that I started to do was think about what does it mean to say you're a refugee? And so I looked into sort of the more traditional texts of particularly psychogeography as well as anthropology and sort of talking about people's attachments to a sense of place. And there are many, many writings about this, and they talk about what is a homeland. It's a defining locality. It's a place of origin. It is the defining characteristic of a diaspora, that they associate with a particular place and that that place no longer exists, or that there's a loss of that place, a loss of context. And they often serve as these symbolic, the homeland often serves as a sort of symbolic anchor for displaced people. Um, it's one of the most powerful unifying symbols in culture. And one of the things that, to me that's fascinating about this is that the idea of Ura's homeland did not exist until it was gone. <laughs> so it was defined by its very absence. And this is, I, this is a, if people are interested in these kinds of issues, uh, Tuan, who was a very famous uh, sociogeographer, wrote about what is place, what, it, what is the difference between space and place, and he talks about the homeland as a sort of focal point of your cosmic structure as well as your identity, and that if that goes away, it's as if your whole cosm cosmos has been destroyed. In this case, it really was. <laughs> um, and then he talks about the fact, yet, he, humans can recuperate from this trauma of their cosmos being destroyed and, in this case, adapting to it by creating this hybrid culture. But it becomes a sort of a mythic concept, the homeland as the center of the culture. And it also has to do with a, a sense of... I mean, this is really interesting at the end here where they talk about sounds and smells because this, the, they would always say, we go to these worlds, and, but none of these worlds is as beautiful as Uru. None of the scenery is as, as stunning. So there was always a strong sense of the visual and the sensory, as well as the sound, which is very strong. Um, so this idea of a fictive ethnicity is really interesting because it contrasts with some concepts in anthropology of, of what's what Benedict Anderson called an imagined community. And the idea of a fictive ethnicity isn't a new concept. And of course, we all know Henry Jenkins' work talking about Trekkies or Trekkers, and I've been told that I need to ask you the difference later on. Um, but that people would identify with a culture within the Star Trek universe, and they would sort of create their own fictive ethnicities around this. When I talked about this at, at Dartmouth a couple days ago, um, a guy in the audience started to talk about how the Trekkies, when he was in high school, were obviously the most socially maladjusted people, and went on at length about this. And I finally said, well, you know, I think that's a very racist attitude to take. Um, <laughs> And I sort of talked a little bit. So what's, what fascinated me was I was, okay, well, what is, I was thinking of an imaginary race. And then I found out that, in fact, anthropologists have been talking a lot for years about the idea that many nationalities and communities and ethnicities are, in fact, imaginary. <laughs> um, and so 
these communities often come out of historical situations that aren't really necessarily natural, like particularly colonialism. So we have all these nationalities that are defined not by the people and the culture, but by some sort of colonial power that came in and sliced things up. Um, and one of the examples that I found was, was that Iraq is actually not a real nationality. It was a fabrication of British colonialism. So I began to wonder, well, is Iru- Iruvian any less imaginary than Iraqi? Um, the other thing that's interesting is there's been a lot of writing about the problem of placelessness, that people are less and less moored to a specific locality as part of the way they formulate their identity. And they talk a lot about you know, the global village, interestingly enough, and the notion that, that what Moraline Robbins called audiovisual geographies have sort of created this identity crisis where people don't know how to connect to a specific locality. And the examples I showed here are a Coca-Cola ad in uh, China and a, Span- a Mexican Walmart. Um, so you, know, you can tell when you look especially at the Walmart, I thought, oh, no one's going to know that's in Mexico. And then I realized, well, that's exactly the point. <laughs> Um, it has a slightly different branding, but there's nothing on it that would let you know unless you got up close that it was not in where it was is, is almost irrelevant. And this interesting idea of Rustin's that the, the capitalist framing of the global village kind of forgets that there's always this collective, the sense of identity that's been attached to collective space uh, among human cultures. And also we see these movements of kind of frenetic nationalism and people trying to sort of cohere an identity with this, with this placelessness going on. Um, and one of the things they talk about that I love is the reimagination of a sense of referential identity. So it seems to me that a lot of what these, these fans really, which is what they are, are trying to do is, is do that very thing, reimagine a sense of referential identity. Um, these are some images from Uru as well. And again, you can see that it's a very exotic environment. It doesn't look like anything else. And it's beautifully designed and rendered. Um, and it has a strong sense of place. It's not generic. You really can tell, oh, this is, a, this is a unique place. And they did a really marvelous job as designers of giving it that quality. Um, and uh, in, in uh, talking about this, so uh, Mimi Ito has talked about the idea of a network locality, although What's interesting is that she typically means like a forum or a chat room, which people will identify as a place. But I'm sort of interested in broadening that to look at, you know, when we talk in architecture or theme park design, which was the field I was in before I got into academia, you know, we talk about placemaking. And that's really what this is. Um, And uh, uh, Gupta and Ferguson talk about the fact that as the place, the connection between place and identity becomes more blurred, it becomes, it, it, it becomes more interesting to think about imagined communities and even imagined places. And in this case, I think they're talking about, you know, memories of, of times and places that aren't quite accurate, like people, you know, the, the land of milk and honey or whatever, and, uh, and that they've kind of fictionalized their history. But in this case, there's no apologies this about break that. Down, but there's a value, a premium on ethnicity in our culture that seems to me goes beyond just the notion of homeland, but to a notion of uh, an identity. And so the idea that you could embrace an ethnicity. Peter Shivani gets at this in relation to Klingon identity in a piece that's in Hop on Pop, where he talks, uses race theory to talk about 
what it means to identify as a Klingon in our culture. And it's a very similar yeah. set of issues to what you're talking and I think, about. And I think the point you're making that's, that's kind of, I guess what I was trying to get at is, they consider themselves to be a different race. It's not about, it's not about democracy or, or politics. It's about, and the other thing that's interesting is that that also makes them different from other people. So when they came into there, they saw themselves as, we're different from everybody else. We're a different race from this other place. And what's interesting is that it, it recapitulated the narrative of the game. Remember in the beginning I told you that the Dunny left the world which had been destroyed and settled on Earth. So they were sort of reenacting the history of the game itself in some interesting ways. <coughs> One of, by the way, just to add to something Henry said, um, some of my students are do doing a study this semester of how the different races in how players use the racial relationships and identities in WoW as a way to formulate their role-playing identities, which is very interesting. Because here in, in this one, we don't, in Uru there's only one race, really, which is, well, there's two. There's the Denny and the players, but the Denny are, not, are gone, so they're not player represented. They're not represented by players. Yes. Um, I was curious about, I'm, I'm not sure at what point in your research um, you ended up working for Turner, yes. you said it was, um, sort of helping them bring people back into this new Uru. Um, but if you still had contact with any of your ethnographic subjects or sort of oh, people yeah, you absolutely. were in contact, how did you, was there ever any conflict in sort of telling them you were working for Turner. Oh, so the, what was the dynamic so of So this that is like? really interesting. I had already, so this was this this initial ethnographic research was done as my PhD thesis project. And by the time the Turner thing happened, the field research was done. And I was writing the thesis and I was compiling the data and almost finished really with the project, um, which, which I subsequently have uh, um, edited into a book. As you can see, shameless plug by the MIT Press. Um, and uh, so what was interesting was that I had already established myself as a part of the community. And what was interesting, I, I had taken on this whole, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about how, how you do ethnography in virtual worlds. And a traditional ethnographer, you know, if I were to go to the Trobrian Islands, I would just be wearing jeans and a t-shirt and I would show up as a white person and I would be in the Trobrian Islands as a, you know, I would look like someone from a western country studying them. But when you go into an online world, you have to in some way adopt an identity within the culture that you're going into. So um, I ended up sort of over time falling into this role, and I talked earlier about the social construction of identity. I didn't get into that too much, but what happens is that people's identity is not an act of solo age of, of agency. So in like Sherry Turkle's early writing, she was like, people go in and they experiment, but that's not actually what happens. What actually happens is people go in and they become part of a dynamic feedback system. And they, they all told me, every single person in my study told me that they were surprised by who they became. And that same thing happened to me <laughs> as an ethnographer. So I went in there and, and I changed over time. And also I modified my method because they told me to. <laughs> I didn't expect them to, but they were like, no, we don't like how you're doing this. We want you to do it this way. And over time, I developed this interesting role of a kind of insider-outsider. I was their ethnographer. So I was part of the group, but I was also 
not in a funny way. And eventually I kind of, and, and I let them actually annotate the final outcomes of the research. I actually put up a blog and asked them to give me, to put comments on it, and it's in the book. I mean, I included it in everything I've written. And um, there was this trust formed. So they had bonded with me, and they, and they also trusted me to then go out and, and tell their story in a way that they would endorse, basically. And, and they've, you know, I actually got a community award from the group for this, which was really shocking to me. But they're like, but she goes out and she gives lectures and she gives live presentations in world and shows people our environments. And um, so I had already done that and I already formed that bond. So when I was working for Turner, they knew I was working for Turner, but I was more of their group than I was an employee of Turner. And I think what they, I, I sort of became a bridge in a sense. And I used to joke because I would tell the Turner people because I'd have these phone calls with them and I go, I'm your spy. So I found out, for instance, that this guy had been outed from the company and they had found the IP address and figured out who it belonged to and all this other stuff. You've been, <laughs> you've been outed. And, you know, and also give them feedback about what they were doing. So when they started to do some stuff actually in the new game, there were things they were doing that weren't working very well for the players and I would just sort of you know, let them know, well, the forums are saying this, but if you go in world, people are actually saying something different. So you have to kind of like, um, but it was fine with them, I think, because I think they felt like they trusted me to give them accurate information. And I think that wasn't the case at the beginning. There was a lot of suspicion. Why was I there? I would, they would, I would put them in a Petri dish, blah, blah, blah. But over time, that trust developed, and then it was fine. And, I, and of course, they were happy because I was helping them get their homeland back. And that's a position ethnographers often don't, don't often have the opportunity to do that. So that was, for me, very interesting. It also, it also brought up a point that I've made in some other, other talks I've given, which is that I think every MMORPG should have an ethnographer. They should have a person whose job it is to study the culture that they've created because there is always, always, always a disconnect between what the game designers think they've made and what the players are actually doing. And most of the time, it's amazing how little the designers know about the culture of the people in the games they've made. It, it seems to me that there are a lot of analogs to, I don't know, di like diplomats who spend you know, years and years in the UN but still represent the people uh, mm -hmm. that, 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 that are not there or um, uh, an ombudsman as uh, someone who represents a bureaucracy but really kind of bridges that mm -hmm. uh, with people who have to use it. So it seems to me that you weren't, that, that because you were starting in a position much like everybody else started in, in, in Uru, as someone who just logged in from, 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 from the outside world, um, you were less of an outsider, I would, I would suspect, and more as someone who had a very specific role of yes. bridging. Well, that's what I was saying. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, and, it, and that ended up being my role. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was what was kind of interesting. There's also this question people ask me all the time about, oh, well, when you go into these things, aren't you afraid you're going to have influence on your subjects? And, you know, the reality is you always do. Humans studying humans. And one of the things I like about anthropology that I think is a little more developed in its thinking than some sociological practices, which still think you can be objective when you're humans studying other humans. And in anthropology, contemporary post-colonial anthropology has dispensed with that entirely. It's like, no, I have a cultural position. I have a set of beliefs. There's nothing I can do to get rid of them. But what I need to do is I need to be explicit about what they are. 
And that way you go into that situation and you're not, you're not pretending, oh, I'm a scientist and I don't. You are going to have an impact. Um, the, the thing that struck me at the end of the day was that they had a much bigger impact on me than I did on them, um, which made me realize how arrogant it is to go into a situation like that and think, oh, I'm going to change everything, when in fact, really, I, I might have had some influence, but, but it was much more the reverse. Yes? We need to speak into the microphone so the archivist can have a complete record of the conversation. Awesome work. Um, Thank you. One of the things I'm curious about is um, you didn't mention whether the World Uru had any uh, tools for the players to create things on their own. And I'm I'm curious the steps out into these other worlds that did. So this was an ongoing discussion there were some players who figured out how to make their own ages, but they never really released them for public consumption. And basically what ended up happening was that before the game actually closed, they began to, I'm going to say, ramp up in the narrative to set the stage for player-created ages. And I actually also worked with them a little bit on that. Like, how do you make... Because what we knew was that if you were going to do that, it had to be in the story. It couldn't just be an arbitrary thing suddenly. How is it that the explorers could suddenly make ages? So they had developed this whole narrative and started introducing first guilds. And so they had introduced these guilds that would allow players to develop expertise in different aspects of the game and eventually they would be able to make levels. That didn't didn't ever find fruition before the game closed, but what uh, Cyan subsequently did um, just a month or two ago was announced that they were going to release the age building tools to the players because at this point it became evident that this is not going to open again as a commercial product. They're not, there's no financial future for them in it. You know, the other thing that's interesting that I didn't really talk much about is the fact that they never intervened in any of this productive play activity. They knew it was going on. They'd been to all these places, but they never once tried to uh, prevent the players, which is one of the reasons the players continue to be fond of them. <laughs> and I, you know, I said this, it's a lesson for people who are trying to develop fan culture. Don't sue your fans. Bad idea. Really, really bad idea. Um, and so that's why the things like the server thing, like they could have just violated Cyan's IP, but they didn't because they love them. <laughs> and they didn't want to have they didn't want to damage the relationship. So they made this announcement, and basically it's kind of in limbo because they ended up getting a bunch of contracts to put all the old games onto portable devices. So they're now putting Myst and all the other games onto DS and all this. So eventually, it's, it's sitting there in a blog post waiting to, but hopefully eventually that will actually be the case. And the thing that was interesting about this whole trajectory is that um, there's a really nice article that Simon Carlos wrote in Game Set Watch about the game whose, whose fan culture outlasted its life. I mean, it was only a six-month-long run, and it's now five years later, <laughs> right? And, and I told them when we were working on the, on the, the Denis project, of, uh, the uh, Damala project of that test server, I said, you know, this isn't your game anymore. You realize that. You haven't, this game has been going on for two years without you. So you need to understand that it's not really your game and there's a collaboration going on here. And I, I think that was always a struggle because they were making these stories and they had actors that would come in. 
and there was a lot of tension around the creative control that Cyan was trying to con- maintain and the fact that these players had been empowered. And, and I, I mentioned this idea of spatial literacy in another paper that I wrote recently. I talk about reading and writing game space, that you can read it in a certain way and understand what it means, but if you, not, if you know that well enough, you can then essentially speak in the language of that game. And that's where you get modding and other sorts of fan practices that these players make were already making new ages three years ago. <laughs> um, and they knew exactly, and there's actually one picture that I didn't have in this, in this, but I have a whole series of pictures in the book of an entire island in Second Life that is a Myst-style game made by Uru and Myst players that is a completely original game. And if you go there, you recognize the syntax of that, ga- of that type of game, um, but there's nothing in it that says it's Myst-like. It's just you, under, you, real, you recognize very quickly that it's this kind of exploratory, and there's lots of text in it, and they really did a great job of using that same kind of vocabulary. So I think the players are going to take, you know, event, I mean, they are taking it over now, but that, that will just continue and, and continue to grow, I think. So, next door. Oh, hi. Um, I'm interested if you could tell us a little bit more about where uh, ethnicity, what... <laughs> ethnic influences there might have been earlier in the Uru experiment? For example, either from Mist, if there are existing ethnicities in Mist, or if there were um, for ex- maybe like players for whom English wasn't their first language, or ways that ethnic signifiers from their first lives were playing out inside of Uru, and what effect their presence or lack of could have had on the um, development? There's a couple of different uh, aspects of that. So first of all, the real world ethnic character traits, especially later when voice was introduced, in the beginning it wasn't easy to tell where people were from. You could tell if someone wasn't a native English speaker, but other than that you wouldn't really know where they were from. But once voice was introduced, you could tell people's accents. But the really the, the biggest ethnic marker I found in virtual worlds is time zones. Um, people are just on different sides of the world, and this group, for instance, has had a tradition since Uru initially closed that they maintain for five years of meeting at noon on Sunday every week somewhere. And that time is specifically so that all of the Europeans and Americans can group. I know people in other communities in Second Life that have Australians in them, which is a pain, because getting Australians and Europeans online at the same time is almost impossible. Um, the the other part of your question, I guess it just doesn't want to go up on the screen. The other part of your question, the interesting thing to me about the, particularly about this, this ethnicity, is it builds on an artificially, a synthetic narrative, right? So, and the Uru story has these weird things about ethnicity in it. So the Dunny are the, this race of people that can create worlds by writing into these books and they become very arrogant and have hubris, and basically what you learn is that they've destroyed themselves by their own arrogance, essentially, and their disregard for the, for the things they've created. They've, they destroy the world as easily as they make them and kill entire races of people and so doing. But in coming to the Earth, they have also colonized um, this mountain, which turns out to have been occupied by another race, and they enslave them. And so there's this whole subtext as you play the game you start finding these hidden prisons and basements and cages all over the place and you find and you can see it in one of the one of the images here that I showed you earlier there's um, these petroglyphs all over the place 
that mm, I don't think they're quite visible in here, but you'll see these petroglyphs every once in a while. And what they are is they're kind of messages from this other group, the Baro, that are trying to send, you know, communicate with each other and with whoever's going to help them. And, and the game conflict revolves around this, and Yisha is actually trying to free them, and, not, and she doesn't want the Dani to come back. She doesn't want the city to be restored because of the oppression that they've meted on this, on this other community. So there's already an interesting race-ethnicity narrative built in there. And then there's the whole history of the game series, so Uru itself has its history, but then the world has this other history that's quite rich. So it's very similar to thinking about something like the Star Trek or the Star Wars world that is extensible. I mean, I think this premise, when I think about world creation, one of the things I think about is a premise that's extensible, right? So Star Trek is perfect. You go to new undiscovered worlds. So there you have an episode every week where you can find a new undiscovered world that you can make worlds with books and what they would do when they were adding content in the second instantiation, they would just, a book would suddenly appear. People would look in the library and there would be a book on a pedestal that wasn't there the week before. And you would go into that level. So it really created this, this rationale for the story. And that's why they were so careful about, oh, we don't want to just plop this player creation in there. We want it to be part of the narrative. <laughs> and it was also controversial because in the, in the earlier stories, only the Dunny can make ages. People that are half Dunny and half human mess it up. <laughs> so, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> it does. I, I, I was thinking of this, that there might be almost like ethnic literacies. And so I, I, Henry got me thinking about this in terms of if the players were mostly, and you kind of identified them as baby boomers, if they were mostly from similar ethnic backgrounds, then they might build an ethnicity in a, in the same way. They might well, like reach so for similar signifiers. And I will like say that. that most of them are white, and they're they're Americans and Europeans predominantly. Um, there are not a lot of African Americans in the group. There are a few people who are like part Native American, for instance. Um, so I I don't think that's so much a factor, but the age is a huge factor. Because there are, in every single time I've, I've spent with these people for any period of time during my field research and even now when I'm studying them on this new project, there are constantly references to baby boomer mass culture. Constantly. And things that people younger would not understand, like people singing jingles from television commercials from the 60s and things like that. Um, and humor that's very age and generation specific. So that's part of, I think, you know, part of what the bond is. And I did actually do a study of baby boomer gamers subsequent to that and found that to be the case, that there was a certain set of sort of play culture um, qualities that baby boomers liked, that they preferred to play together because they found, like, that, for example, there's all this trash talking and, and homophobic language that's very common in World of Warcraft and other online games that baby boomers just don't like. They just don't, they find it distasteful and unpleasant and, and infantile and sophomoric, and those are some of the words I've heard them use. Um, and also there's a lot of sexism. So I've, I've, there's a couple of quotes I have in this paper from women going, you know, I was told that I can't play Battlefield 1942 because it's not a game for girls and things like that. And they don't want to hear that, so they hang out with older players who don't seem to have these misogynistic <laughs> attitudes. Um, so I find that the generational aspect is more relevant 
Um, there's some really nice work that's been done by two people about um, the, the real-world ethnicity aspects. Um, uh, Leo Sengming Wang has written some really great writings about Korean MMOG players, and Bonnie Nardi did a study of Chinese WoW players, which is fascinating. Um, and one of the things that's most interesting about it is they don't really play at home. They go to cyber cafes. And, and so she actually went to China. When she, once she found this out, she was like, well, I'm going to go there and see what the, what the real world culture around this is. So typically they go with people they already know um, in groups. And it's kind of like instead of going to play billiards or karaoke or whatever, they go to you know, uh, these cyber cafes. And one of the things she found that was fascinating, for instance, is that in the United States we know that in most games, not the case with this community, but in most MMORPGs, roughly 50% of the female characters, for instance, in World of Warcraft, are played by male players. This is almost entirely unheard of in China. Chinese players do not do very minimal amount of transgender play, and particularly among males, it's very frowned upon for males to play female characters. So just, I mean, that's a subtle thing, but it's exactly what you're talking about completely different, and it, it has different roots. I mean, it's not that th there's, it's, it's strange. I'm not exactly sure why that's the case, because there is so much homophobia in the U.S. WoW community, and yet it doesn't seem to connect with trans, tr you know, with cross-gender play. People don't associate playing a female character with being G space, A space, Y, which is one of the many things people do, so it doesn't get blur blurted out by the censorship algorithm. <laughs> You know, it's like very interesting the dynamics of that. Um, any other questions? I don't know how much more time exactly. You guys are going to have to say when it's time to. I think we have a little time. Uh, okay, I'll ask a question. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm interested in your notion of place and your feeling of place, and I'm thinking of those 200 people going from Uru to Second Life and um, that their initial conceptualization of place had those Mensa games. And in Second Life, did were the gaming, or I mean, was it like the new game was to recreate this old place? And so place really is more about like the avatar and the visuals? Or is there the, um, the, the whole idea that it, Originally, that sense of place had inherently to do with solving these puzzles. The two areas they built were not um, really puzzles. They were more like the, the garden area up there is more mm -hmm. of a, um, it's a reward for having done a bunch of other puzzles. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually the last area in that age. And the, the, the mechanic, there's one mechanic where you go around and you find these journey cloths and you touch them and they light up. And they actually put that in there. Mm -hmm. um, they also um, uh, made a replica. There's a, there's a really funny game in the, in the neighborhood I showed you where um, it's kind of a rock, paper, scissors type game, but it has like a holograph and everybody picks each round. You pick one of three symbols and they all kind of outdo each other and then whoever. Um, they rebuilt that and scripted it. Mm -hmm. So those were the only things in those places that were really scripted, and they did recreate that. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of things that are interesting about the recreation aspect. First of all, um, I think one of the reasons that players in Second Life did a recreation was because they could. 
Um, it was not possible to do this in there. It's, there has a totally different structure. In, for instance, you cannot manipulate terrain in there.com at all. All the terrain is fixed. And so anything involving this kind of curvy ground and stuff like that is not possible. This kind of contiguous ground to cave, all of that you would not be able to do. Um, what they did instead in there.com was they made these artifacts. And what's interesting to me, so here they made this place, and this place is in a location, and you have to go to it to see it, and everything in it is where it is. The, the Varians worked within both the mechanisms and the economy, which is has this auction-based uh, artifact sale thing. So you make stuff, and then you put it into this auction system, and people can buy it. And it's not location-specific. It's just in the auction. So what happened with the, with the Varians and with the Uru Varians was that they made these artifacts. They put them into circulation in the culture at large, and they circulated among other players. So what's interesting is here in Second Life, you tend to see one Uru place, and now there's a whole other group that's now building another Uru, Uru recreation. Whereas in there, wherever you go, you will see Uru artifacts. Literally, you cannot fly around in a hoverboat for more than 10 minutes without seeing some kind of Uru artifact, three quarters of which have nothing to do with the Uru community. They just said, oh, those are cool trees. I'm going to put them in my backyard. But they're right out of mist, basically. <laughs> so part of what I found interesting is what I call you know, saying that they wanted, when they first went there, the, the, the Uru Varians, when they first went to there.com, they also wanted to try to recreate Uru, and they couldn't do it. <laughs> and also, the, the, um, the, both of these worlds, again, this issue of limited resources. So I get an, I don't know, this is probably way too geeky for most people here, but I guess we are at MIT. So I'll geek out for a minute if you don't mind. So there are underlying software mechanisms that contribute to emergent behavior, and this is kind of what I'm interested in, is people do what they do because they can. <laughs> and so if they can't, they'll do something else, or they'll try something else, or they'll come up with a workaround to do what they want to do. So um, what, they, what, they would, what they did in here was they, could, they were able to create this whole fully rendered environment. In there.com, they started to do this hybrid thing I talked about, right? So if you go into Second Life, there's no unifying aesthetic. Every themed area and every environment is completely different. And that is not the case in there.com. They did a lot of work to try and make it have a contiguous sense of aesthetics. And players make the content, but they try to fit into that. And so they went and they got to this level where I showed you the, the house from the university, which is this hybrid thing. Um, and what the guy who made that house told me was that he basically had this strategy that he was going to make new Uru ages essentially emergently by by sending these artifacts out into the wild <laughs> and seeing what would happen. And that's exactly what happened. And instead of being a contained Uru, there are some contained Uru areas, but most of it is intermingled with all this other stuff. So, is that? Yeah, it, it's interesting because where they were solving puzzles, where they move out and they redefine what a puzzle is. Like, it's like oh, yeah. They, it, well, it's, well, this is the interesting thing, is that one of my arguments in the book is that Cyan trained them to do this. Uh -huh. They were trained by Cyan to solve hard problems. Mm -hmm. And so when they were given the ultimate hard problem, there's no Uru, that's what they did. What they always did was solve hard problems. Okay, 
get scoffers. The other thing I want to mention is that there.com has a mechanism that allows you to create quests. And so they do this constantly. They still they, they love making quests for each other. It's like one of their favorite forms of productive play. So yes. your last your very last comment sort of fed the question I was going to about about how Cyan trained them. The question that I was thinking about is these are people who've had forty to fifty years of experience under their belt before they got into Mist and mm-hmm. Guru. What is it about that experience that made that the sticky one? In other words, why why is their Uru identity the important identity of all the identities they carry? It's not as if they, unlike real ethnicity, where you're born and sort of your early childhood memories are bathed in it. This is something they acquired voluntarily late mm-hmm. in life, and yet it's the thing that they that sticks. And I wonder if there's any thought about why. Um. Well, that's a hype. I mean, I can give you a hypothetical answer to that. You know, I, I've kind of trained myself as a sociologist not to make sweeping statements that have mm-hmm. no basis in fact. And I'm, I, can't, I can't point empirically to this is why, but I can tell you a couple things about what they've told me. Um, they uh, really like the beauty, the, the breathtaking beauty, the sc- scenic beauty of the environment. And in the, the subsequent baby boomer study I did, this was a very common theme going to an alternate universe that was beautiful and scenic. And this sort of explains why these players don't really enjoy something like, say, Half-Life. Not much scenic beauty in Half-Life. They like nature. They like games. So, for instance, in the Baby Boomer study, um, there's a really great, if anybody's interested in this demographic, the great untapped millions of dollars to be made, I'm telling you, um, on this untapped demographic. Gameboomers.com is a community of baby gamers, and they mainly play adventure games. Um, they, any game that takes them to a sort of magical world or an alternative world, um, they like mysteries, they like intellectual challenge, they're not interested in Twitch at all. The least favorite genre of baby boomers in my study were driving games. <laughs> um, the, middle ra- the, the younger spectrum, they like shooter games, but only if they're in an interesting environment. So, for instance, Battlefield 1942 is extremely popular among baby boomers, <laughs> um, whereas they weren't really interested in Half-Life or Halo or games like that. Um, so the intellectual challenge and the story. And a lot of the people in the, in the baby boomer study, and on their, I, I actually uh, put, a, put a conversation on the forums. One of the things they said that was really interesting was, we don't mind reading a lot of texts when we play games. <laughs> And adventure games use a lot of text, and they're fine with that. And they like talking about what does this mean, trying to interpret. You know, people would sit around and go, what does this mean? Why is this, why is this glyph here? Oh, that looks like this thing we saw in this other age. Um, learning the numbers and the language and the words. There's a guy, actually, who's teaching Dunny and there.com, a language class. So this idea of learning about... I mean, learning about the culture is part of what they like about the game, the depth of it. And also very much not interested in violence and, and combat, and in many cases, competition. The, the, particularly the Uru players are not very interested in, in competition. And they play, actually, a bunch of them play WoW, but they tend to play on PvE servers less than the battlefield environments. So, Did that answer your question? I always go off on tangents, and I, and I think, did I say it? With the, with, thank you. <laughs> Oops. 
Are you okay back there? This thing? Is it, is it working? Ow. Whoa. I was wondering what Je about Gene's ears. Okay. Um, so you, you talked a lot about the, um, uh, you know, refugees immigrating to the, and you talk about, like, is, was it there that had the most going yeah, to the it? Group, well, the group that I studied sort of by accident turned out to be the largest group. Well, I, I'm, uh, I'm wondering, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, ethnicity and, and, uh, and people immigrating to different cultures and sort of setting up uh, these identities within these cultures. So was there any, were there ever any um, examples of sort of anti-Uru racism, right? Did Absolutely. You have, you have like the anti-Uru anti yes. league in there or like people who would the, like... Okay, so that's a really great question. I kind of touched on it earlier, but I, it is a really good question. And, and interestingly enough, not as big of a problem in Second Life. You have to understand that Second Life is kind of like Amsterdam, right? You can pretty much do anything you want in Second Life. You can present as anything you want. You can wear anything you want. It's a very tolerant um, environment. And so it's much... I'm, but even so, uh, this is kind of a tangent, but I think it was relevant to your question. Uh, the most sort of um, diminished fan culture of all fan cultures, as we were discussing yesterday at dinner, is the furry. So furries are really the lowest on the totem pole of all fictive ethnicities. Um, they're below Klingons, they're below, and there's actually a chart that somebody made that shows the hierarchy of fandom and furries and then under furries are the fetish furries so if you're a furry who's into furry sex you're really bottom of the heap there and in 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 second life the furries are the largest community of any group um, and similarly the most maligned so there was a great blog post that i read a, a couple of years ago by a guy who went to a a, a symposium in second life about tolerance as a furry and was asked to leave, which I just think is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Now, with the Uruvians, what was interesting was, because of this issue with the bandwidth, that was one thing that caused people anxiety, was that they were taking up too much cycles and causing lag. So you kind of have to think of that as, you know, the natural resource of cyberspace was being threatened. Um, but also, people were worried because there were so many of them. It was a fairly new, at that point, a fairly new virtual world. It started about six months before Second Life, and it was, so it was about a year, a little less than a year old when they came in. And they really freaked a lot of people out. And there were people that would post and want them, we want them kicked out, and they thought they were going to try to turn there into Uru, um, and they would run them out of town, they would grief them, they would put links to pornography, they would make signs, because back in, when they first went into there, you couldn't own land. You, you can now, but only collectively. But you would, if you wanted to have a house, you would have this thing called a porter zone. It was like a tent. And you could pop your little house up with all the furniture all preset and everything. And so people would come next to their settlements and put up like links to porn websites and stuff, like a sign, a billboard, with like a link to porn websites or something to grief them and harass them. And they kept moving and moving and moving, and they had to move seven times. And then what happened was that the company really wanted them to stay because there were a lot of them, and they were paying subscription fees, and they were affluent. I mean, these are people with incomes of seventy-five dollars to $100,000 a year, right? They're in this, this demographic that has a high income, and they were spending like three times more money per person than, you know, other people. So they ended up finding an island 
the initial, the one I showed you with the little signs on it, which they said, okay, you guys can just settle here. And they didn't really own it, but you can. this can be, you just do your thing here. It was in the middle of the ocean. It wasn't near anyone. And they said, we'll just leave you, you know, it was like a kind of a, you know, a ghetto, if you will, but on this island. But a paradise, yet at the same time. But there's, there's always been this longstanding sort of lore that there was someone else there who was removed in order for that to happen. And nobody really knows for sure if this is true or not, because some people claim that she already had left. But there's this sort of, oh, yes, but they had to displace so-and-so who was there. But the interesting thing that's happened, and this is what's kind of, to me, the, the most fascinating thing about these people, is they came in, they were marginalized, they transculturated, and then they started doing things like joining the member advisory board and starting a university, and they are probably the most influential single group within there.com at this point. They own more real estate probably than any other group. Um, they spend often as much as two, $300 a month a person on their projects. It costs money to make things. So they have this economic clout, <laughs> right? Um, it sort of reminds me a little bit of, of sort of the Jewish diaspora going into other places and developing a very a high level of cultural and economic clout um, over time. And, and uh, is is there any like does the does the sort of racism against them sort of step up to meet that challenge as as much? Or, yes, or are no. They... There are still some people. In fact, there was a big um, discussion that happened when Uru closed again. I'll, I'll get to you in a sec where um, a bunch of people who were not Aruvians posted a thread uh, uh, suggesting that, and this is very weird because uh, there doesn't usually make new land. It's not like in Second Life. Second Life is flat, and they can just add tracts of land on whenever they feel like it, so it's an infinite space, whereas there is a sphere, <laughs> and all the pieces of land are basically fixed. And people actually wrote a post and said, why don't you make a new island for the new Uru immigrants who are coming in? And there was a huge backlash. And the weird thing is this was actually suggested by people who were not Uruvians, but were friends of, because there's a whole bunch of people that sort of hang out with them. Um, but then there was this other group that went, why should they get special treatment, blah, 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 blah. So they ended up not doing it. So it's, I think people are used to it. And also they're not as, you know, Har- they're harmless. I mean, they didn't hurt. An, you know, they didn't really hurt anybody as much as people thought they would. And they've done a lot of positive things for the community, so people also appreciate that as well. Hand up. <coughs> Sorry about that. It's really funny because you're you're in a position where your hand is exactly aligned with this overhead projector that's right in front of me. Oh. So for like half the time, it was right behind the. Yeah, go ahead. No, um, I actually have a number of questions, but I guess I'll I, – and I apologize if this has been addressed before because I had to come in late due to a meeting. I guess one of my first questions is when you were talking about the design and sort of aesthetic consistency, whether or not you can talk a little bit about what the cultural reference were when you were thinking about how to design this and what the implications for those design choices are, given I, that it does address stop. a lot of – I'm not the designer of this world. Can, I mean, can you talk a little bit about what then you think? I'd rather what, what, not because I just don't. I, mean, I don't like to. I don't like to um, necessarily say stuff that isn't true, per se. Well, I guess That's my question me, is then maybe you can't 
maybe talk a little I bit about what the implications might be given what the designs might resemble in why some don't ways? I, why don't I do this? Since I'm talking about the culture of the players, why don't I talk about that in relation to the design? Because okay. that's what I actually do know about. So instead of just making stuff up, I can tell you something I actually know. Okay. Um, so there.com has a very cartoony aesthetic, as you probably saw from the avatars. It's got a kind of, um, let's see if I can find a picture here. Um, kind of a very Walt Disney type of very friendly style. And what I can tell you about that, so we'll look at the upper right here. Slow, slow, slow. So you can sort of make it out there on the upper right. So, you know, you can see it's very different from, say, World of Warcraft. <laughs> and it's sort of, I always sort of, in my comparison with Second Life being Amsterdam, I say that there is Club Med. So it's got a couple of things. It's 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 well lit, although there are some dark areas too. But it but it's way more well lit than any other virtual world you'll ever see. For one thing, it's very much made to be like a vacation place, and it's very much made to be a family place because it's one of the only 